We say these things we all are in agreement around, but we have a lot of flexibility on things that we consider not as essential as these core beliefs. So we're in week seven, and today we're considering the doctrine of the church. So glad you are here today uh, to jump into this, this belief together. And uh, we've actually been using a lot of different texts of scriptures as we've gone through this teaching series instead of like one key one. Uh, but today we're actually going to do one key text that I'll teach from. We'll, we'll, I'll reference a couple others. So that being said, I'm going to invite you all to stand with me. And I'm going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 to 21. After I read the scripture, I will say the word of the Lord, and you all get to respond, thanks be to God. All right? Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being here today and the privilege of being part of your church. Uh, God, as, uh, as uh, many problems as we see in your church, we know you deeply love your church and have died and given yourself to make us uh, holy in your sight. So thank you. So God, I pray today uh, you'd open up our eyes to see uh, our, your church as you see it. Uh, teach us, form us, mold us in this time we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as many of you know, um, I not only serve as the pastor here of this church, I also uh, work with our denomination. I work with the, the New England District of the Evangelical Free Church, uh, and I drive around quite a bit visiting other pastors and churches. So as I spend time in the car, I'm often having podcasts going uh, to kind of pass the time. And one of the podcasts I've been listening to recently is a podcast called uh, As in Heaven. Um, and this podcast uh, comes out and usually does like a 20-episode season, so it's kind of a long-form podcast. And what they're going through right now is a podcast on the state of the church in America. And they're exploring what's, call, what's being called the de-churching phenomenon. And they actually commissioned a whole study where they um, did an academic uh, research project uh, exploring uh, attendance, traits, attendance trends in the church over the past 30 years. And what they discovered is that over the last 30 years, roughly 40 million people who used to be regular church attenders now no longer attend church at all in America. So 40 million people who used to be regular church attenders now no longer uh, attend any church at all. And there's a lot of factors behind this and they, they lumped them into two big categories. One category they called church casualties. 
And these are people who may have experienced great hurt in the church they were attending. Uh, maybe it was a, abuse, um, just general mistreatment, but they, they were hurt in a way that caused them to leave the church. Also, some of these people may just have changed their belief. They no longer believe what the church believes, and they have left the church. That's about 25% of the people who now they consider to be uh, de-churched people. 75% of the people in their study, they found to be, they called um, casual de-churchers. Casual de-churchers. For one reason or another, maybe they moved to a new city and just never got involved with the church. Um, maybe during COVID, they stopped attending and just never got back in the routine. But for one reason or another, they have no longer uh, considered themselves part of a church, but they still believe all the same things that their church believed. Um, for one reason or another, what we're, what we're finding right now is a large uh, movement is happening in our country. This is the size of almost the first or second great awakenings, which were both, both movements into the church, and this is a movement out of the church. So for one reason or another, many people in our culture today consider to the church to be optional at best and detrimental at worst to their faith. Now that's a kind of somber note <laughs> to start the service, and I would be... Um, uh, very myopic if I only consider the church in the West. Because actually, when we raise our eyes and look at the church in the larger world, the news is actually quite good. Uh, the church globally is rapidly growing. Uh, do you guys know where the, uh, what country has the fastest growing uh, evangelical church in the world? Iran. Right now, it's Iran. Fastest growing church is there. Second uh, country with the second fastest growing church is Afghanistan. Uh, churches around the world, even in some of the hardest places, are, are thriving. I think what we see here is Jesus' words being confirmed. I will build my church. And this happens all throughout church history. Churches flourish for a time. They often atrophy for a time. But throughout the ages, the church has grown. And no government, no tyrant, no one can actually stamp out Jesus' church globally. Jesus is building his church. So today... Uh, I want us to consider uh, the doctrine of the church. We're, we're going to consider four key truths about the church that Jesus is building. Um, earlier, we read the uh, Statement of Faith, Article 7, um, and I will read it to you again just so it's fresh in your mind. Uh, Article 7 of the EFCA Statement of Faith uh, says this, We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches, whose membership should be composed only of believers. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. All right, four key truths from that statement of faith and from the story of Peter's confession of faith that we're going to consider this morning. First of all, the church is made up of justified people. That's how the statement, the article began. The church is made up of justified people. What does that mean? Um, when you look at the story of Peter and his confession of faith, you see that Peter had been following Jesus 
for a period of time. He'd been considering who Jesus is. He'd been seeing his miracles. He'd been hearing his teaching. He's considering him. Jesus brings Peter to a point of decision, as Jesus does for all of us. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, have to come to grips with who is Jesus and what will we do with him. Uh, The claims that Jesus makes, are they true? And so Peter is considering Jesus, and Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ, meaning uh, the Messiah, Uh, the anointed one who is promised by God to come into the world and to rescue us uh, from our sin. Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ. And more than that, I believe you are the son of God, the rescuer from God who is divine, come to rescue us from our sin. Now, this confession of faith uh, in it is wrapped up what we're trying to talk about in this idea of being justified. I actually think that every human being, whether they know it or not, is on a search for justification. We all have a sense that we need to justify our very existence. And more than that, being basically a decent, good, righteous person. And we all go about this in different ways. Some of us try to justify ourselves through our work, proving that we are one of the good people in society who puts in our time and and earns our way. Others of us do this through our family faithfulness. We're part of a a good family. We have a sense of rightness, righteousness. We are justifying ourselves through that. Others of us do it through our our, our, our moral living. You know, I I keep the rules of society. I'm one of the good people. And there's a sense of justification. The, The problem is, we're all basing our sense of righteousness on our own standards. And the question is, does any of that matter to God? Like one day we'll all stand before God, and in that day, what really is the standard? And the scriptures tell us that the standard is something none of us can actually meet in and of ourselves. And, and so what we see here is Peter recognizes that it's not him, his goodness, that is the solution to the problem in the world. It is Jesus the Christ, the one who has come from God to rescue us. So his confession of faith is not about his own goodness, it's about the goodness of another. And so for all of us, we have this opportunity to recognize in Jesus that we can be justified by the goodness of somebody else. Now this is both humbling and wonderfully freeing. It's humbling because we have to recognize that honestly, as hard as I try to be one of the good people of society, I'm not. That all of us, when we look at Jesus Christ, realize we're not as good as him. None of us can save ourselves from our sin. And so it's humbling to recognize that, but it is oh so freeing to get off the treadmill of self-justification, trying to prove ourselves through our work, through our moral performance. That gets wearying and tiring. But with Jesus, we have a justification that is a legal status. He declares us to be right in his sight. And we receive this by faith. Just as Peter said, I believe you are Jesus, the the Christ, the Son of God, we can say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the one who has come to save us from our sins. And we receive that righteousness that we can never earn. It is freeing to receive a status of justification. So the church, what the church is, It's made up of the people who have received this status 
of justification. Uh, the church is the only organization whose membership is made up of those who realize they don't qualify. That's what the church is. We recognize that we aren't the good people who prove ourselves through our goodness. Somebody else has given us his goodness. The religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't get this. They were really bothered by Jesus. They were bothered by why he seemed to hang around the people they considered the bad people of society. And Jesus said to them, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. And that made them really mad because they were relying on their own righteousness. Jesus invites us to let go of that and to receive a righteousness that comes by grace, the unmerited favor of God, received by faith. We believe that God has given it to us. So the church is made up of justified people. First thing we got to realize, the, the second truth about the church is that the church is essential. The, the church is essential. Uh, did you notice in this story how quickly Peter's confession of faith in Jesus turned to Jesus' statement about the church? That Peter puts his personal faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus doesn't simply say, oh, that's great. I'm glad that we're now in good relationship and I'm glad that you can go to heaven one day when you die. He immediately starts talking about the church. See, for Jesus, our faith and his church are intricately connected. The church is not optional to Jesus. It is essential. So what do we mean when we're talking about the church here? Uh, well, the Greek word is the word ekklesia. Ecclesia. And what that word uh, or that phrase means is a called out assembly. All right? Um, so, three things uh, about that word. Uh, first of all, if the church is a called out assembly, it means that it's not the building that is the church, it's the people. Um, people are the church. Uh, secondly, it's people who are called out, meaning we're all part of humanity. If you're born, you're part of humanity. And God is reaching into humanity and calling. Jesus said, come, follow me. It's an invitation. So Jesus is calling people, don't trust in your own righteousness. Trust in mine. Come learn to live life with me, like me. So Jesus is calling to people to come join him in his group of disciples, his church, his family. Thirdly, it's a group of people who are together. So it's not just that we are individually called uh, to follow Jesus. It's the assembly that when the church is together, uh, there is something special there about Jesus' presence. So the church is people who are called out together. And to Jesus, this is essential. We'd say, why? Why is the church essential to Jesus' plan, especially when the church seems to be so messed up? I mean, if we're, if we're honest, the church is made up of imperfect people, we see all kinds of problems in the church. So why is the church essential to Jesus' plan? Um, in the, uh, the EFCA statement of faith that we read, uh, there's a line that says, they, meaning the, the church, they are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. They are united in the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. There's a lot of pictures in the scriptures that talk about the church. This is one of the most primary pictures, that the church is the body of Christ. You may have heard that expression before. The church is the body of Christ. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
uh, verses 12 to 13 and uh, verses 20 to 21, we have this idea explained further about the church being the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You see the picture there? You know, Paul is saying that the, the point of Jesus coming and saving us was, was to make us part of his family, his, his body. And if we're part of a body, we can't live a whole life if we are severed from the body. You know, a finger doesn't work too well, cut off from the rest of the body. Because the, the point of what God is doing on earth is his spirit being lived out through his body. And so we need to be together, connected, if that reality is going to be lived out. If we understand this biblical view of the church, we realize that the church is not an add-on to personal faith. It is intricately connected to what it means to be a Christian. Now, honestly, this is a little bit of a countercultural view, even within our church world of today, that the church is that essential to Christ's vision. So let me walk, talk, uh, take us a little further into why that's the case. Uh, third truth to realize is that the church is embodied locally. The church is embodied locally. The, the, in the statement of faith there, it said that the true church is manifest in local churches. That if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you are part of God's forever family. That God has put his spirit within you. God has made you to be part of the family. Now, that, what that means is you are part of a family of followers of Christ that were born and died a thousand years ago. People who are living in Iran today. You're part of that large body, that large family. But you don't see, talk to, or are encouraged by those people today. Uh, the people that you're going to actually live life with are local people. And so we recognize that the true church needs to be manifest, be made visible, be seen in local churches, which is why you are here today. Uh, you are expressing faith in Jesus through a local assembly. Now, what you are doing here today is more profound than you might realize. In 1 John 4, uh, verses 9 through 12, we have this crazy statement made by the Apostle John about how God is showing himself in the world. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, the first half of this verse um, is not that radical if you've already come to believe in Jesus, that, that the way that God is being seen in the world is primarily through the person of Jesus Christ, that, that God loved us and didn't just send us um, an email. Uh, he didn't just send us some form of a message. He sent a person, 
Jesus Christ is God in flesh. So God was manifest, seen, experienced in person in Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you say, yes, I believe in the incarnation. John takes it a step further because Jesus is no longer on earth today as he was 2,000 years ago. And what John is saying is the way that God showed his love to the world in the person of Jesus, he is now showing his love to the world through the body of Christ. That when the body of Christ loves one another, is together with one another, it is God's love shining in us and through us. That the local church is the way in which God is manifesting himself to the world today. That is uh, tough to get my mind around sometimes. Because I see the you know, the, the failures of the church. You say, really? This is God's plan for showing himself to the world? It is. We can't walk through the scriptures and see otherwise, that God's plan is to make his love manifest in the world through his people. Now, we must be uh, mindful of the need to be together to make this uh, a reality. Uh, the New Testament talks about all these one another commandments. We're to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, carry each other's burdens, encourage one another, and the list goes on and on. And we can't do those things if we are uh, living a disembodied kind of faith, if we aren't together carrying out those actions. And I think we need to be especially mindful in our day of the need to live a connected, embodied faith. Um, one of the great privileges and uh, temptations of our day is technology. And one of the great temptations of our day is to live our lives primarily through a screen, to have a relationship with people through a screen. Now, I'm not going to become a complete Luddite and eschew technology altogether here, all right? Um, technology is a wonderful servant. It's a terrible master. It is supplemental to the relationships we have. So it builds upon relationships. Uh, I am so thankful, especially during the pandemic, that we were able to have technology to maintain connection. But that's not the way church works best. We need to be together in, in around kitchen tables, uh, crying together over trials, rejoicing together at parties. Uh, the church works best embodied. Now, Jesus gave us two practices in the church that are embodied practices. Uh, the practices of baptism and communion. And do you see how tangible they are? I mean, this is not just a concept, not just something we kind of like think about. It's a physical reality because God intends to save us soul and body. And so in baptism, we experience being immersed in water, this incredibly uh, physical act where we are telling the story of the gospel. We go under the water, demonstrate that Jesus died for our sin and was buried we come up out of the water, recognizing that he rose and we rose with him. And it is this embodied way that we put our, we, we tell the world about our faith in Jesus Christ. And then in communion, we take the bread and the wine and we bring them into our body. Not just thinking about what Jesus did, but then tangible reflection, tangible remembrance. You see, God's plan for his church is to be embodied people together embodied and together in our bodies, uh, celebrating the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The church is embodied locally. The last thing I want us to consider today uh, may be the most shocking of all of the truths we're going to consider. 
And that is that the church is God's plan to conquer hell. The church is God's plan to conquer hell. Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Famous statement. I think it helps to know the setting of this statement to understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, this took place uh, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, uh, which was uh, a Gentile region. Actually, I have a picture, I think, uh, of this region. This is a modern picture today. Um, you can still go there and visit it. You see there's a whole kind of cliff in the back, and there's all kinds of hollowed out areas. And this was an area of pagan uh, worship. Uh, centuries before, this region had been called not Caesarea Philippi, but Baal Hermon. Uh, it was in honor of the pagan uh, Canaanite fertility god, Baal. And we read about him in the Old Testament. And worship of this god involved ritualized prostitution, self-injury, and child sacrifice. All happening right there at those cliffs. See, when Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the disciples are looking at a place where immense evil had taken place. We're talking about the gates of hell, you're kind of looking at it. See, there is great evil that happens in our world. Horrible things that happen in our world. And Jesus says that his church will not, uh, um, will, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we can consider that statement in a couple ways. You could think that, that statement means that, you know what, this world is dark, it is evil, but God will make sure his church endures. That the world cannot overcome the church. Many people read this verse that way. I don't think that's correct. And here's why I don't think that reading is correct. Because gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates don't attack anyone. Actually, gates are something that a force comes against. So Jesus, I believe, saying here that the church won't just endure uh, this age of darkness, but the church will overcome the evil in the world. It is the church that is overcoming the gates of hell. And we'd say, how does that happen? How does Jesus intend that his church would overcome the darkness, the evil that we see in this world? Well, in Matthew 16, verse 19, as this story continues, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to his disciples, to his church, in order that we could overcome evil. The keys of the kingdom is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus and his gospel that we come to faith and are able to enter the kingdom of God. This is the keys that unlock for us the kingdom of God now and the kingdom of God forever. And see, it's only in uh, the, the kingdom of God that life is actually set right, that evil is actually overcome because Jesus is ruling. So Jesus gives us the keys so that lives can be changed, uh, eternities can be altered. But I think if we're honest, we often want a different kind of implement than a set of keys to address the evils of our world. If I'm honest, I'd prefer a sword. 
I'd rather have something a little more intimidating than a key if I'm running into battle. And I think all too often, um, as followers of Christ, we fall to this trap, thinking that something other than the keys of the kingdom is God's plan to overcome the evil of the world. As we keep reading through the Bible, we realize that God actually has given different instruments to different uh, uh, organizations in the world. To the church, he gives the keys of the kingdom. Romans 13 tells us that to the governments of the world, God's given the sword. That governments, God is working through governments, as good and bad as they might be, to restrain the evil of the world. That's the purpose of governments, is to restrain evil. And every government does it imperfectly, some better than others. But they have the sword so that there is a restraint of evil. And sometimes the church wants the sword too. Being able to use force and coercion to be able to overcome evil. But the problem is, the sword can restrain evil, it cannot overcome it. Only the gospel can from the inside out change an evil heart. And so to the church, God gives the keys. And in our world, the keys look a lot weaker than the sword. We will not see it that way one day. One day we'll realize the power that we actually have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only force that can change a person, a heart, and then a family, a community. It's to the church that God has given the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, though it may not be seen as such, the church, Jesus' church, is essential. It's beautiful and it's powerful. So here at this point of the message is... Uh, where you probably expect the preacher to turn up the guilt and encourage you to get more involved in the church, right? If the church is that important, that crucial, well, time to, you know, sacrifice further. And I am going to invite you into greater involvement. I am. I am going to encourage you to take another step of obedience on your faith journey with Christ's church. But the motivation to do so makes all the difference. See, after Jesus laid out his vision for the church, to his disciples, and after he gave them the keys to the kingdom, he went on to say something else. We read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, his next words. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. See, every other religious leader inspires their followers with a grand vision and then says, be devoted to that vision. Prove yourself in your worth by your commitment to this vision. Jesus is different. Jesus says, here's what I will do for you. I will lay my life down for you. I will rise from the dead for you. I will conquer Satan's sin and death for you. See, Jesus motivates us to invest ourselves in his church by giving himself for us. See, if our motivation for investment in Jesus' church is anything other than the love of God given to us by the free grace of Jesus, then we will always feel as though we are putting God in our debt by our investment. We'll think, you know, um, I'm giving up a beautiful Sunday morning to be here. Uh, why aren't things going better for me in life? It, shouldn't it work that way? Um, I'm participating in a community group by giving up a night when I could be doing other things that I would prefer to do. Um, why aren't things going better with my kids? I, I'm giving my money financially to you. Why aren't things going better for me in my work? 
See, there's a subtle thought there of compensation, that if we do these things for God, he'll make life work the way we hope. And that is the definition of religion, of human effort to try to put God in our debt. And Jesus hates that. It's the other way with Jesus, that Jesus does for us what we could never do. And all he calls us to do, he has already done. I mean, he has done far more than we will ever do, and he calls us to participation with him. We participate with him in the work he is doing in this world. We participate with him in his sufferings. We participate with him in his glory. What we're called to participation with Jesus Christ in his church. So with that said, let me come back around and say, what is your next step of involvement with Christ's church? For some of you, it might be baptism. Oh, we're going to have a baptism service uh, at, the at the beginning of August this summer. Already people in our church are desiring to be baptized, and I want to invite others. Uh, if you've come to a point like Peter of recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you want to express your faith publicly and your connection to Jesus' church, man, I would love to talk further with you about joining in on this baptism. Others of you, it might be membership. Uh, church membership is one of the ways we commit with others to be on Christ's mission together. Um, membership is a way that we say, I'm planting my flag here to follow Jesus with this crew. Uh, we have a membership class coming up uh, next Saturday. Love to talk further with you about that. For others, it may be investment uh, relationally uh, in the church. Uh, we have, this coming fall, we're really gonna look to expand our community group's connection. Um, I would love to invite everyone here to be part of a community group uh, in the season ahead to really consider not just coming and attending once a week, but getting relationally connected to other people in the church. And for others of you, it may just be viewing your time together here on a Sunday morning as being a regular part of your weekly rhythm. That what you're doing here this morning uh, is soul-shaping over the course of your life. Gathering together weekly with followers of Christ to sing truth, to hear God's word, to connect with other believers uh, this is not something that is light and trite. It is deeply meaningful. Uh, uh, my wife and I actually had a pastor when we were young encourage us to make Sunday mornings uh, a non-negotiable kind of part of our rhythm. Like obviously, things come up and we, we travel, but, but not kind of wondering every Sunday morning, you know, will I go or not, but saying, I'm going to commit my connection with other Christians to grow in Christ with them. That's been a shaping practice for us uh, over our life together. So what will your next step of involvement in Christ's church be? Uh, love to talk further with you about that. Will you stand with me? And we're going to close the prayer in a song.